Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming the author of the new book, Stop Self-Sabotage, Dr. Judy Ho. Dr. Ho is a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist and is associate professor of psychology at Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Education and Psychology. She's appeared as an expert contributor on over 100 shows, including Dr. Drew, CNN Tonight, and Outside the Lines, and co-hosts the CBS daytime talk show, Face the Truth. So, Dr. Ho, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do this. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it's really wonderful to have you here. And I just wanted to start to give a little bit of context for our audience. You have such a breadth of expertise. You're certified by three different boards, I believe. I think as a psychologist, a neuropsychologist, and a forensic psychologist, which is incredibly impressive. You've done media for a variety of different outlets. You've really collected a lot of information and skills through the course of your career. And you kind of could have written about almost anything for your first book, I think. So why did you choose this topic? So I think that self-sabotage is so universal to every single human being. And certainly not every single human being will get caught up in the throes of it. But at the same time, almost every single human being has experienced some effect of self-sabotage at some point, even if it was just incidental and from time to time. So I felt like this was a topic that would not only appeal to almost everybody, because we all know somebody who self-sabotages or even ourselves recognizing that sign in ourselves, but also understanding that it's a biologically and evolutionarily rooted phenomenon, which is what ties it all together for every single human being. Mm. Could you say more about the evolutionary and biological roots? I found that one of the most striking things about your work. And before I go further, I also want to add that I consider your book on self-sabotage to just be a phenomenal manual that people can apply to more than self-sabotage particularly emphasizing cognitive behavioral methods, as you know, it's just really fantastic. It would be the go-to that I would suggest to people for, you know, practical things they can do immediately to change how they think about things. And then based on how they, you know, think about things, start acting differently as a result. So I just want to get that non-solicited plug in there right up front (laughs) for you. Um, So to to the point, self-sabotage, means that we're getting in our own way. And it actually reminds me of the root of the word for sabotage, which I learned recently has to do with workers throwing their wooden shoes into the mechanisms in a factory to <laughs> force it to grind to a halt back in France 150 years ago. And they, they were this called is sabots. the most Rick anecdote ever. <laughs> this is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but, it's, but it's great. So we're throwing our own shoes into the works of what we want to want to do by definition, right? So why is it, including in terms of evolution and biology, that we block ourselves from what we know at some level would be really, really good for us and others? Oh, it's so interesting. And thank you for that unsolicited plug. I appreciate (laughs) that very much. My goal with writing this book is really to provide a scientific basis for all of this, because I feel like people talk about self-sabotage all the time. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a colloquial term that we throw around, but what is the scientific basis? And so in my theory, I believe that it's rooted in biology and evolution because all human beings really just have two major drives that we can continue to survive as a species and as individuals. And the two major drives are achieving rewards and avoiding threat. And 
in general, when those two things are in balance and we're doing really well, but sometimes what I call the self-sabotage switch will go on and you start to avoid threat so much more than thinking about attaining rewards. And nowadays, threat isn't the saber-toothed tiger anymore for most people. Things like being rejected when you ask somebody out, it's giving Mm. a talk and being laughed at and going for a job and not getting it. And those types of things, if you start thinking about the consequences of some of those threats, will start to hold you back more and more, causing you to stay stuck and not approach any kind of rewards, whether it's social or physical. So what are some of the major kind of families of ways? You're describing a couple of specific examples there, but kind of categorically, what are some big ways that people tend to sabotage themselves? So I think some of the most major categories that I tend to see self-sabotage are in the domains of personal or intimate relationships, Mm -hmm. in career and goals pursuit, and in health, wellness, and fitness. You know, those are kind of like the major categories that I see that happening. And I want to be clear too, that most people who self-sabotage, they don't self-sabotage in every single area of their life. It's like, Generally, mm-hmm. their life is going pretty well in 90% of you know what they're doing, but that 10%, you know, and it tends to be in one or two subcategories of life. You know, why is it that they keep falling down or they keep basically getting in their own way despite their best intentions and despite them saying that they don't want this? And so I, I find that, for example, for a lot of people who tend to be quite successful at careers, that where they falter more is their social and intimate relationships. So that involves Mm -hmm. a large amount of vulnerability, a lot of which isn't in your control because if you decide to enter into a relationship with someone else, you don't get to control or decide how they feel about you and how they'll act. And so that can be a place in which people will start to tell themselves messages like, I don't really want a relationship anyway. Or, you know, this person is, you know, not good because of XYZ being extremely picky so that they end up getting in their own way of having any kind of meaningful relationship in the long run. It's interesting in a way you're talking about in terms of these two evolutionary drives, avoiding sticks and getting carrots, right? And you're talking about, right, uh, the problem, the the essence of self-sabotage in a way is that the fear of the stick overwhelms the very rational appreciation of the carrot and what you could actually do to get the carrot without risking so many sticks. And I'm sure we'll get into that. But what's interesting is you're talking about people who have a lot of experience with carrots. In other words, they're often successful. They've had a lot of evidence in their lives that they are actually able to accomplish things, to get the carrots in life. And yet in maybe this one particular area, perhaps romance or perhaps in some area of their career, they're irrationally afraid. They're overestimating the threat of the stick and underestimating their carrot-based capacities to, to get what they really need in life. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that there are four major reasons why people overestimate threat. I developed an acronym to try to remember this easily for myself and for my readers. And (laughs) as I get older, you know, I need mnemonics more and more. So I (laughs) I have the mnemonic for myself. And uh, the mnemonic is life. So L of life stands for low self-concept or low self-esteem. And low self-concept sometimes can get in the way and make people overestimate that threat because they don't believe that they either deserve good things or that they really truly can achieve what they want. And sometimes people have low self-esteem in one area of life, but not in others, right? So somebody might really believe in their prowess as an athlete, but when it comes to romantic or maybe academic pursuits, they feel less sure of themselves. So it's possible that you have you know, these various sides and facets of your self-esteem that could play a role. 
I stands for internalized beliefs. These are the things that we call up from our childhood most of the time that we've learned from our experiences as children and maybe from parents or other notable adults who were our providers and our mentors. And if you watch them deal with stress and conflict in a certain way, you might start to adopt that yourself. Or sometimes they actually give you that verbal information directly, like, you know, don't trust anyone because they're just going to screw you over. And then as an adult, you actually start to believe in those things for yourself and apply them to your own life. F is for fear of the unknown or change. Now, most human beings are not great with change or the unknown because again, those can represent threats. But I think personality-wise, we have a dimension. There are some people who kind of thrive on change and there are some other people who generally, they like to kind of stay in their comfort zone. And if that's who you are, you may also be more prone to overestimate threat because it's anything that you don't already know. It's that kind of saying of the devil you know, right? It's sort of like that Mm -hmm. same idea. E stands for excessive need for control. So this is really targeted at my, you know, overachievers and type A people out there. Um, <laughs> I love type A people. I myself am a self-proclaimed type A people. These are some of my favorite people in the world, but... I'm recovering. I'm in recovery as a type A person. <laughs> oh my goodness, you are going to then. No, Rick's been trying to retire for about five years now, so that might give you an example. Okay, all right. So he's, he's still early in recovery, so he's not yeah, that's it. That's early it. recovery. That's early it. recovery. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. So, you know, the excessive need for control can sometimes get in the way because sometimes if we can't see every step along the way and know exactly how we're going to be able to dictate that process, it may actually lead us to think, you know what, maybe this goal isn't really that worthwhile for me and move on to something different. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to categorize the different ways that people can kind of accidentally intervene inside their own life, to put it a sort of kind of way. One of the things about the book that I really enjoyed personally was how kind of actionable it is and how you really lay out all of these different exercises that people can do in order to identify the things that might be getting in their own way. And for me, as I went through this, I kind of identified that the two for me that sort of were the most resonant was this idea of lower shaky self-concept, where my self-concept hadn't necessarily gotten updated based on some of the kind of good things that had happened in my life. And secondarily, that idea you mentioned before, a fear of change of the unknown. As like once you change the circumstances of your life, once I enter into a new arena, things can start to feel a little bit uncomfortable. So just as a framing question, how can somebody try to identify what their elements might be? And what can we do to work with those life concepts more effectively? Great question. And I think, you know, to your point for us about self-esteem and self-concept kind of lingering and not being updated, I think that's a very common experience for people because Mm -hmm. we're younger. I just think imprinted so much more vividly, right? And it's the first time we're coming into contact with how the world works and who we are. And so our our brains generally better at assimilating things into our pre-existing knowledge base than to like actually change our pre-existing beliefs to accommodate new information that comes in. So unless you actually go at it in a more, I think, a more pronounced or like a more systematic way, then your brain is automatically just going to like reinterpret what it gets and fitting it into your original ideas or maybe even ignoring the new information altogether. And so mm-hmm. that, that's really when you said that. But, you know, in terms of how people can actually look at their own self-sabotage patterns. So in my book, I actually have this life quiz that you take, but it's also available on my website and it's free for anybody to take this quiz. Great. My website's address is drjudyho.com and then it's backslash stop self-sabotage quiz. 
So that's where you can find it. And it takes you know less than 10 minutes to do this quiz so that you can actually see which of the four life factors is most prominent for you. Now, for some people, it's more than one. This quiz will tell you which one is predominant, but some people will listen to those life factors and be like, uh, I think I'm all four, but I think it's important to kind of find out. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, there's no shame in that too. You know, people are like, oh no, what does it mean? I'm like, it doesn't mean that you're worse at self-sabotage. It just means that all four affect you. And I think that's, they are common and they speak to a lot of people, but generally people will find that one of them though is in the driver's seat. Judy, what's interesting for me is that your approach really focuses on fear. And I think fear is one of the great underestimated emotions. I remember when I was in training, I was in supervision, you'll relate to this probably. My supervisor said something once that really struck me. This was a while ago. He said, you know, like when they investigate crime, like the FBI, they say, follow the money. Well, in the therapeutic world, follow the fear, follow anxiety, because it's so fundamental to us. So I'm just kind of curious here, if fear of dreaded experiences is what really anchors self-sabotage at bottom. What do you find are the primary dreaded experiences for people that at bottom really anchor their self-sabotage? That's a great question. And, you know, fear, as you mentioned, is one of those great emotions that people sometimes avoid talking about or they think that it's all negative. And of course, it's not. Fear is great. Sometimes it's awesome. It's a barometer of what we should be avoiding and what what we should be paying attention to, right? So there are some really productive mechanisms of fear. But in terms of the ones that people seem to be the most, I guess, you know, fearful of, you know, in terms of like what types of factors or what types of categories of fears, I think so much of it is rooted in social connectivity Mm -hmm. and how we relate to one another. And it makes sense because we are social animals. I mean, even people who say, you know, I think there's a common misconception, right? When people say they're introverts, like, oh, you don't like to be around people. No, that's not necessarily true. It's just that, you know, they they tend to derive more energy and recharge by being alone. And so, you know, everybody needs people. And I think we now have a preponderance of scientific evidence that shows that, that without social connectivity, and without sort of a good community, people have all kinds of physical and mental health effects, right? They, they could have premature death. They could have a high risk for cardiovascular disease. But at the same time, they're also more at risk for depression, anxiety, and even some substance disorders. And so I think that the fear around not being socially accepted and not being able mm. to build a community or to have connectivity to someone, like you may not need 20 best friends, but you need one, you know? Those types of things will, will get you really, really caught up. And nowadays with social media and the fact that you're always looking at other people's highlight reels, well, it always makes you feel like you're coming up short. So that social comparison of, well, how come I don't have that? Or how come I've been working at my fitness goals for a year and I'm still 15 pounds heavier than I want it to be? You know, it's just easy for people to like think about that and then just give up and say, you know what? It's probably better if I don't try because it's if I keep doing this, I can just embarrass myself or further allow myself to be exposed to rejection or all kinds of things that, you know, in their minds is so much more serious than maybe it has to be. So with regards to those kind of social fears or those primary social concerns that somebody might have that might be holding them back in one way or another, you gave some great examples there. If somebody were to walk into your clinical practice or just give you, you know, mention this to you walking down the street, whatever it is, and you were to give them some advice about how to 
manage it, how to intervene inside of those social fears, what are some of the things that you might do with that person? Well, the first thing that I would say is we all have to start paying more attention to our thoughts. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think oftentimes we don't even recognize that our thoughts are driving 99.9% of our feelings and our actions. And so we'll recognize the feelings because they're very uncomfortable to us, especially the negative ones. And then we'll notice, we'll, we'll notice the consequences of you know, actions that might not be productive. But then we don't notice that thoughts actually precede every feeling and every action. And so it's crazy, but I, I think you know, there's a lot of research about this. I don't know how accurate it is, but the research in this area will say that most human beings have somewhere between 20 to 60,000 thoughts or thought fragments a day. So clearly, we're not paying attention to all of those things. Wow, right? yeah. And actually, a thought does precede every single thing, but we don't recognize it, which is why now people are talking about mindfulness all the time, because how many times have we driven home and not even realized how we got there? Well, that's because your mind was on autopilot and it just drove you home. But there were still thoughts that preceded every single turn that you took and everything else. It's just that you're not looking at it or thinking about it. And it's the same thing with thoughts that have been around for a while. So things that kind of further derogate your self-esteem or these internalized beliefs that have lived in your mind for decades, you know, these things are so common that your brain has started to ignore them because your brain is a cognitive miser. It has to make some executive decisions about what to pay attention to, or else it will just be bombarded and completely exhaust itself. And so it's not paying attention to these things that have been around for a while, but they still might be the undercurrent to why you're feeling and acting in certain ways. And so I would say the first thing is let's pay more attention to our thoughts. But then I very quickly then follow that up with, but then don't take them so seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Pay attention to them, but like don't take stock in them, right? Because that's the problem. If you have a thought, people then think, oh my gosh, it means that it's automatically true. Or because I had a thought, I had to deal, I have to deal with it right away. And it's really not true. Oftentimes our thoughts are inaccurate or incomplete portrayals of what's going on. And so You know, I think classic CBT strategy is all about how do we change those thoughts into thoughts that are more helpful. And while I think that that is a good technique, and I do talk about it in my book, I think sometimes what I believe is a more evolved technique is actually changing your relationship to your thought. Yes. Yeah. So sometimes people will say, well, I know what kind of alternate thought I'm supposed to be writing down. Yeah. My my thought is I'm a loser and I guess I can come up with an alternate thought to that, but I'm in a mood today and I just don't want to. Right. And Mm -hmm. I understand that because there's sort of the intellectual exercise and then it's like actually believing in it. And so I, I think that a more evolved strategy is to actually change your relationship to the thought so that it doesn't affect you as much. So the thought can still be there. You don't have to change the actual thought, but you label it as a mere mental event and nothing more. And one of the quickest ways that I can tap into this type of technique is through a strategy called labeling. It's literally called labeling. So if you have a thought like, I'm never going to be able to lose this weight, just tack on in front of that phrase, I'm having the thought that. And now that thought becomes, I'm having the thought that I'm never going to lose this weight. And already the wind gets taken out of the sails just a little bit, right? It's like, oh, it's just a thought that I'm having. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen or that it is happening right now. Judy, I wanted to just toss in a couple of points, see what you think about them. First is, I've just seen with a lot of people that actually emotion, especially mood, precedes thought or it primes or shapes thought and also action. If people act in certain kinds of ways, that also can shift their thinking. And so that's kind of point one. Maybe I'll let you comment on that. Then I've got a follow-up question. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the 
the classic cognitive behavioral model basically says that it doesn't have to start, even if your feelings and your actions could derive from thoughts, that the, the cycle itself is, you know, kind of bi-directional. So if you behavior, you can change your emotions too. If you change your thought, you can change your emotions. If you change your behavior, you can change your thoughts. So everything can kind of relate to one another in that way, which is nice because that gives you some flexibility. Like some days, if you feel like, well, the thoughts aren't really moving, but let me do the action. Let me, even if I'm feeling depressed and I don't want to go out, let me just force myself to go out and take a five minute walk. That does change the thought process and it changes your emotions too. And so I think that that's a really good point. And in fact, I have many clients who are like, I don't want to get so deep today. Can we just talk about <laughs> actions that I can do? It's just more concrete for me, you know? And I, I get it. You know, sometimes there's that resistance to therapy too. Because like, oh, totally. like dig in there and talk to me about all of my innermost fears. And maybe instead of that, you can just give me a list of things to do. And so we can certainly tackle it from that perspective. Yeah, I've seen a lot of situations where people are kind of shadowed by maybe a physical health problem, something not quite right, not enough to send them to the doctor, but something's kind of wonky. Like for myself, I noticed one of the early symptoms that I'm going to get a cold is that my mood starts to slump. Mm. Or similarly, people wake up and who knows what kind of uncon you know what kind of unconscious processes were happening in their dreams, and they're just in a certain mood, which then primes them to see things a certain way. And to your point here that I think is really helpful, it's to not take it so seriously. When you start realizing that some of the engines of what you take as the ticker tape, as it were, you know, the kind of commentary track, what are they, the Chiron track, right? Yeah. At the bottom of the <laughs> CNN screen, right? That to realize that a lot of what drives that Chiron track, as it were, if I'm pronouncing it right, is very impersonal, actually. It's just that your stomach is upset, you know what I mean? <laughs> or you didn't get a great night's sleep. And so that helps you not take it so seriously. Yes. So to kind of build on that then, your method there of, you know, thought noting or thought, uh, what are you labeling, right? I am thinking that I'm too fat or I am thinking that no one will want to hear from me if I say something at work. What do you think about the ways in which we can help people, in a sense, take their own mind streamless personally. So one example of that would be the technique that shifts from, I am thinking that no one will take me seriously to something like, there is the thought that no one will take me so seriously, or there right. is the fear of what will happen if I speak up. In other words, it kind of depersonalizes it. What do you think about that approach? Oh, I love it. And I'm glad that you brought that up. So in my book, I talk about two of my favorite techniques to do this. And one of them is quite literally depersonalizing it in that you start to put it on objects that have nothing to do with you. So one way to do this is to do an exercise called thought clouds, which basically you're imagining clouds floating across the sky and you're imagining any thoughts or thought fragments. And for some people, thoughts can also be images. So that could be mm. also what you imprint on these clouds. It's kind of imagining that if your clouds are moving in your peripheral vision from the left, through your center of vision to the right peripheral, that as each cloud is floating by, you're kind of like imprinting a thought or a memory or an image onto each of them. And then once they go out of your sight, you kind of let them go. If they come back around, that's fine. Put them on a new cloud and just keep going. Ah, that's a <laughs> great technique. Is there a reason why you do it left to right? Well, to me, I feel like left to right makes sense because I think about reading but you can actually do it any way you want. And some people okay. who are left-handed, actually, I'm, I'm actually left-handed, but some people who are left-handed, 
I like it from right to left. I'm like, do whatever you want. It can go up to down. It can go down up. Whatever makes sense for you. For me, it makes more sense left to right. And I think it's important that the clouds keep moving. You know, the whole point is that when you put clouds in the sky, they move. They don't just stay in one place and you have to kind of have that same idea. And so I think that, again, is the personalizing because their clouds are not part of you. And then that helps you with that process. But a second technique I really like is to be able to imprint either your thoughts or your difficult emotions onto what you can see as the physical object. And so Mm -hmm. if you're struggling that day with a negative emotion of being lonely, you can look at loneliness as a physical object and try to think about it that way. Like try to describe what it looks like to you. Is it the size of a bowling ball? Is it black? Does it feel soft or hard? You know, take some time to try to describe this in your mind. And then I think a, a really important follow-up is to realize that you can manipulate any physical object and that there's all mm. bound to every physical object. So, you know, I tell people all the time, even the Grand Canyon has a beginning and an end, right? And so when something is physicalized, it feels manageable. Whereas when it's in your head, it feels amorphous, like it's going to go on forever. Mm, yeah. to stop. That's awesome. Yeah, no, really great set of techniques. And I think that particularly the last one, that idea of turning a ephemeral or amorphous thought into a physical bounded object can be extremely useful for people. And to kind of continue our conversation around thoughts, you talk about triggers in the book, these six kind of self-sabotage thought triggers that people can have. If I can run through them real quick, mm-hmm. I think they're overgeneralizing, shoulds, black and white thinking, mind reading, discounting the positive, and personalization. And most of them basically are what they sound like. Uh, I took the quiz inside the book, which was great. I think that mine's probably discounting the positive, which certainly lines up with my own experience pretty well. And I was just wondering, developmentally... Forrest believes in these preemptive strikes. <laughs> right? I, I want to cut in before I Rick can kind of tell me what's wrong with me. Isn't there a term, me, Judy, you know I mean? defensive pessimism, something like that? <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe a little bit of defensive pessimism creeping in there right here. But I was just wondering... Forrest, so, you're talking to a superstar therapist here. She can help you. Uh, I, I need all the help I can get. That's clearly the case. So what actually leads somebody to have one of these triggers rather than the other? Well, I think it links a little bit to the life factors. And I think that certain life factors will naturally lead to certain ones more than others. And so when Mm -hmm. when you share that, you know, low self-concept was something that was in your sphere of influence, it makes sense that discounting the positive would be part of that. That's part of the assimilation process that we're talking about. Like if you have a pre-existing idea of some, something like some kind of inadequacy, or maybe you're not good enough or not doing as well as you should, well, when any kind of positive comments come in, you're either likely to completely deflect them and start to compliment someone else, which, mm. <laughs> or you're likely to say, well, that doesn't matter. Anybody can do that. But what about this other thing, this one small thing that no one's talked about, but I know that's the real problem. You know, so you sometimes, sometimes this counting the positive will come with sort of like overemphasizing the negative. You know, you get a great job review and there's one thing that, hey, maybe you can work on this and all you think about is that thing. And so I think that there's certain life factors that certainly lend themselves more to one more than the other. And I talk about them a little bit in the book, but certainly low self-esteem or low self-concept definitely links up to discounting the positive. Should is something that links oftentimes to excessive need for control. And the fear of the unknown oftentimes can lead to a lot of personalization because you're constantly trying to guesstimate what somebody thinks about you. So you can like decide what you're going to do next. You know, mm, so it's like, oh, that's well, really interesting. do they like, yeah. they like me? Do they not? I got to suss them up so I know what to do. And for people who have internalized beliefs, they oftentimes will 
have a lot of, you know, sort of triggers that are not only in the discounting the positive, but also in the catastrophic sort of scenarios where it's like, oh, well, you know, if I kind of expect that things are going to go south, I at least I'll be prepared. And I kind of should expect things to go south because that's what I was taught when I was a kid. That makes a lot of sense, doctor. No, and I mean... This wasn't intentionally going to be an episode of Forest Experiences and Live <laughs> Therapy, but I'm grateful that we're doing it because it's been legitimately helpful. And also, I just think that it's really good to frame things for other people to kind of bring it into the real a little bit here. To kind of continue the thread that we're on in terms of that idea of, of self-concept, which was a topic we ran into a little bit when we first started talking. One of the examples that you gave in the book that I thought was really, really fascinating is this idea that even if you're somebody who experiences some challenges with self-concept, and the reason that I'm kind of emphasizing it here is not just for my own benefit, but I just think that it's something that a lot of people really struggle with, where even if their life improves, they won't necessarily update the sense of self. And even more so than that, they'll actually take on some behaviors that move them back to their kind of negative life circumstance, kind of move them back into homeostasis. Mm -hmm and into alignment with their kind of view of the self, which I thought was just a really interesting example you gave of somebody who became very accomplished in their work life, but they always had some self-criticism and some issues there. And so even once they got promoted, they kind of started slacking off at work to the point where they got demoted or they got fired, their life returned to the way it was before. So if you were working with somebody who was challenged in that way, what were some of the things that you might do with them to kind of help them with that act of updating the self-concept? Yeah, so this is a great question. And I'm so glad that you find this personally relevant. I think- Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Enriched by your personal experiences. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so I think for me, when I see clients who, who talk about this, and this is a common thing, of course, for all of us who have any kind of core beliefs, they're going to be hard. They're going to feel immutable at first. And core beliefs are these basic ideas of who you are in the world. And, and that's really what's driving any kind of low self-concept for most people, that there's some kind of core belief that kind of feels applicable across domains in your life. And like, even if you're not constantly thinking about it, it's leading to certain automatic thoughts. It's leading to certain actions. Like you said, that kind of reset that homeostasis. And so these core beliefs can be reworked through looking at the kind of rules that you've set up according to that core belief. So if you have a core belief that you're inadequate, you know, that's kind of how you just feel, you just don't feel good enough for whatever reason, you're going to have certain rules in life. Like for example, rules about making mistakes, like don't make any, you know, or <laughs> if you make some, cover them up real quick because you don't want to find out, you know, and, and it can also even lead to things like, you know, how you express your needs and wants to other people. Like, no, like don't ever tell them exactly what's going on because they might judge you. So just be of service to other people, help other people. That way you have value to everyone, right? And so all of these rules can, can happen over time and kind of set you in a certain pattern. And the way to work at core beliefs is what I call behavioral experiments. It's a term that's borrowed from CBT where you actually find scenarios to actually start challenging these rules. So you're not challenging the core belief itself because that's much harder, but you're challenging the rules. So if one of your rules is, if I make a mistake, I'll get fired. I mean, this is going to be a risky rule to test. So I don't say start testing the risky ones first, but like, you know, test one that might have a little less inclination to completely throw you for a loop if it doesn't work out. But let's say in your mind, you're thinking, if I make even one little mistake, I'll get fired. And your therapist has actually cleared you and said, you know what? I think this is not that risky after all. Why don't you like accidentally misfile something and then tell your boss about it and see what happens? 
And then you do that. And then your boss likely will be like, oh, well, then just file it again. Or, okay, don't make sure it doesn't happen next time. But usually people don't get fired over misfiling one thing. So once you get that data, it's actually really important that you write it down. So you write down beforehand what you think is going to happen, like what your plan is. And then you write down what actually happens once you've done it. And that's actually really important to put pen to paper because otherwise you'll just talk yourself out of it again like you usually do and assimilate the old beliefs uh, back into your pre-existing structure. So you've got to write it down and then you move on to like the next level of that rule or maybe go for another challenging rule. But the idea is that once you've accumulated a few of these, and it's not going to be tedious and forever, maybe a 10 to 20 of these that can be done over the course of a few weeks, your core belief will start to be a little bit more shakeable. And that's really what we're looking for. We're not necessarily saying you'll never have this core belief again, that it's never going to come back and creep into your subconsciousness. But it's about, can you start to see that the core belief itself is not permanent and that maybe it's conditional? Like maybe there are certain people you can't make mistakes with because that's a belief developed from somewhere. But maybe it doesn't apply to every single person in every single mm. of your life. What's great here to me is that you're talking about helping yourself learn, helping yourself learn to see things in different ways, feel differently and act differently, which is really great. And I was just curious about what do you think people can bring to bear alongside this learning process that can turbocharge it? In other words, you imagine 10 people all following the same procedures that you've laid out here, and some of them are going to be superstars, right? They're going to be top performers. They're going to learn really, really well. So what do you think about things like external support from friends or a therapist or internal factors like self-compassion, or as you said earlier, mindfulness, or other things like that? What can people mobilize inside themselves to really steepen their growth curve when they go through the kind of methods you're describing? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's response is going to be different and on a different trajectory and timeline. And so you know, of course, one thing is just remind yourself that it just takes time to make change. I mean, if people are looking for that sort of, oh, I'm going to push the magic button and all of my self-sabotage is going to go away. Clearly, this book is not for them. And I don't think any book could promise that because it just takes time for these patterns to change. But there are certainly ways that we can strengthen our learning. And I think one of them is the support of close confidants, family members or best friends or romantic partners that you feel safe sharing some of this information with and asking for their support, almost like an accountability buddy. It really helps to have someone mm. to report to. Mm -hmm. Certainly when I was writing my book and I was setting deadlines for myself, it was very nice that I had an editor at Harper who I knew I had to give the paper to. And it was funny, as I was writing this book, <laughs> I was thinking like, don't self-sabotage right now. <laughs> because um, that would be very ironic. But I think it's really helpful to have somebody else to talk to, to bounce ideas off of, and, and you know, just to kind of keep you on track. I do think that the support of a professional therapist is important, especially if you find that some of your issues are pretty deep-rooted. You know? So if you've taken that life factor challenge and you've looked at some of your negative automatic thoughts and you're like, whoa, I had no idea these were so significant, it might be helpful to get with a therapist and talk through that and think about other ways that you can approach and support this program. And, and finally, self-compassion is huge. And I think a lot of people who self-sabotage, they have the worst self-compassion. They don't have any. Yeah, for sure. And they just keep beating themselves up and why can't I be better and what's wrong with me? And I, I love the loving kindness meditation, but I think that that's a really good one for building self-compassion where you start off by actually praying for other people and, and thinking good thoughts for other people, right? So you're like, oh, like um, the first part of my meditation is going to be like, you know, thinking a good thought of somebody who I care about or who cares about me. And then maybe even then thinking 
a good thought for somebody who might have presented themselves as a challenge to me, maybe even an enemy of sorts, you know, like thinking a good thought for them. So it progressively gets more difficult because the last thing is having that compassion for yourself. Like, so the last part of that meditation is like, oh, let me think about being kinder to myself. And for people who find meditation challenging or visualization impossible. The good news is we have so many YouTube videos and resources (laughs) of the loving kindness meditation, anywhere from three minutes to 30 minutes, depending on your patience level. And so I tell people like, just check it out. The worst thing that could happen is you don't like it. I mean, nothing bad is going to happen to you by trying to do this, right? This is not like a contraindication. You're not going to hurt yourself, you know? So, so check it out because sometimes I think it is helpful. And then the other really quick route to self-compassion is just trying your best to put yourself in the eyes of a loved one, somebody who cares about you. And what would they say to you in this moment? Would they beat you up or would they say, don't worry, like everybody falls sometimes, just get up and try again. I think those are some lovely practices, doctor, and is a great way to frame the kind of rallying of internal resources to meet our negative thoughts. So much of what we've been talking about here is about the operation of the mind. It's about kind of what we do inside our own heads. So if you're comfortable answering it, I would love to ask you a question that we ask most everyone who comes on the podcast. It's just, what's the most important thing that you do inside your own mind each day for your own well-being? I love that question. You know, for me, Mm. I really start out every morning with just a period of quiet Mm. and time to contemplate, time to you know, do some spiritual reading or just connect with any kind of mindful practice. I make sure that that happens every single day, no matter if I'm on vacation, no matter if I'm having a really busy work day, you know, I will sacrifice an additional 20 minutes of sleep to make sure I have that time because it really puts my own mind on the right path, no matter what's going on. Because otherwise you wake up and immediately you're thinking about all your responsibilities, your stressors, what's going on that day. And I just think that that will start you off in a very disorganized fashion where you're not even checking in, for example, with your values, you know, and this is a part of the book that I talk about, you know, more, more uh, kind of further into the book, sort of like the finale, really, it's Mm -hmm. making sure that we're in touch with our values. We're such a goals driven society. It's all about checking things off. And, you know, I want to hit my bucket list. But what is that in service of? Like, what are those items on your bucket list in service of? Is it just because your friend also put it on their list? Or is it because it actually gets to something that's more deep rooted for you, something that you want to be remembered by and how you want to live your life? And I think that also helps to bolster you from times in which you find distressing. Like, for example, if one of your values is honesty, well, what person with that value would have had a not a rough road at some point, you know, to be honest, mm. that you're going to come up with people who not who might not like that. Maybe some people won't want to be your friend anymore. Maybe by being honest with your boss, you might even lose your job. But like, if being honest is important to you, then you stay the course. And that I think is a really important message of, you know, are we taking some time to check in with what our top values are today? And I try to do that every morning in that time. I think that's really great. And you sort of beat me to it here. That was very much something that I wanted to ask you about toward the end of the book, where you do that kind of analysis of are our goals in line with our core values? And something that you just pointed to there that I think is just so true is actually one of my favorite lines that Rick has said. It's one of, you know, I mean, my dad says a lot of things and I I ignore most of it, but some of it (laughs) sticks with me. It really does. Some of it does stick with me. And one of the lines that really stuck with me is this phrase, when your virtues are not valued. 
And what I mean by that is the experience I think that many people have, which you're sort of relating to here, of you're an honest person and you believe that that's a real virtue, but there might be circumstances in your life where that virtue is not valued by other people. And that can be really challenging for our sense of self, our self-concept. Because if we're doing something and we think that it's like kind of problematic on some level, we sort of expect other people to not necessarily line up with it. But when we're doing something that we think is really good and we're kind of punished for it anyway, man, that's a pretty brutal spot to be in. So any commentary you have on that is wonderful. And then I also wanted to ask you, what's something that people can do to maybe find more of what their real values are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are really great questions, you know, and I think they're deeper questions too that I, that I love exploring with people. And so for me, you know, I think, uh, yeah, sometimes you're going to be countercultural when you embrace a certain value. I hope not. I hope that doesn't happen to you too commonly, but that that, that might mean that you have to re-examine your social sphere and like who, who those <laughs> inner people are. But but hopefully you don't get to that too much. Although I would imagine most people will get to it at some point in their lives. And so when that happens, you know that's when your internal compass is more important than anything else. So that's that's something that we all have to hone, right? Because again, we are social animals. We have to be socially connected in some way to survive. So, you know, we have to be sometimes socially adept. And that sometimes might mean putting some of our values, maybe not front and center and at times on the back burner. But I think overall, you're not going to be very happy with that. You can't keep doing that or else you're going to start to feel very disingenuous. And, you know, this sort of cognitive dissonance is going to start rising up too much. You know, like one example that I was talking about oftentimes with my friends is I have a really good friend from grad school who was working in a tobacco research study where he was trying to, you know, show the, all of the negative effects of smoking tobacco, but he was a chimney smoker. And eventually it was like, either he had to leave that job or he had to stop smoking cigarettes, you know, because it's just, it's too, too dissonant for him to like, tell people to stop smoking every day. And there he is like at every bathroom break, like smoking five cigarettes, you know? And so I think that sometimes that dissonance can really get to us, which is why we have to be aligned with our internal sources. But it's hard to do that in this society. And so I hope that through identifying your values over and over again and seeing why those values have been so important in your life is going to help guide that internal compass that even if people are around you, it's almost like resisting peer pressure, right? When people are like, it's okay, you don't have to be that honest. And you're like, but it's important to me. And you have to be strong in that. It does take time to build up to that. And one of the exercises I talk about in the book is, you know, looking at your peak moments in life. So this is an established theory about, you know, how when you've identified your most important values and you look back at some of your most memorable positive moments in your life, you're going to find that those positive moments were inundated with your top values. And that Mm -hmm. also helps to help you to remember that internal compass of, you know, no matter what anybody says, I know that when I'm pursuing these values, they make me happy and they make me feel fulfilled. And, and kind of almost reminding yourself of that during those difficult moments of, but I, I know that this is important to me and I have evidence that it's been important to me throughout my life. And so even in this immediacy, even if it's uncomfortable, I still have to find my way to pursue this. Yeah, I think that there you're naming one of these fundamental themes in psychology, intrinsic versus extrinsic reward, interdirected versus other directed, as, as you well know. And The way I would describe it is that for myself, my life in many ways, I think, has been a journey that has to do with my relationship with the internalized audience. In other Mm -hmm. words, Mm -hmm. so much of what I think we've talked about here 
is fears anchored in our social life. They're not fears of physical pain or starvation, but they're fears of rejection or disapproval or not getting lots and lots of five-star reviews on Amazon, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And social media really has accelerated that issue because, as you said earlier, we're constantly comparing ourselves. And Forrest has made this comment previously too. We're constantly comparing ourselves to the highlight reels of others while we know the full movie, warts and all, of our own life, right? So one of the things that's struck me along the way is that the wonderful and horrible truth is that most other people actually don't care that much. In other words, they're like us. You know, when other people do stuff around us, we notice it. Maybe we'd be mildly disapproving or mildly approving, but it just fades fast and it just disappears. And yet internally, we're constantly trying to manage ourselves to get one more molecule of applause out of the audience that we imagine. And, And in a lot of ways, it just brings us back again and again to you know, audiences are fickle. Much of the time, they don't care. There are 10,000 factors that are out of your control as to whether you're popular or not. Do what you want to do yourself. Do what you care about yourself. Serve people in ways you care about from the inside out. So for me, that's that's been a real takeaway. And to kind of self-disclose about it, which will be a segue into asking you a question. One of the things I was really aware of a lot around self-expression, because I think that's what we're talking about. We sabotage that which we'd like to express, right? So I was very aware throughout my 20s and 30s of this very strange process that it's like I would want to stick my head up above the weeds and stand out and be visible, but then there would be the fear of a shaming attack and I would swerve away from that kind of self-expression. And a lot of my own journey has been about, just like you said, running behavioral experiments on a kind of increasing ladder of risk in which I would stick my neck out. And then when it went well, internalize that. So I was less afraid the next time of the shaming attack that was rooted in my own childhood. So that's kind of been me along the journey. So I'd like to ask you, if I could, a question we routinely ask people here, which is, if you could go back in time to yourself as a kid, and intuitively I want to pick junior high school or younger for you, what would you go back and say to yourself then that you think you know, would, could, could have really helped? I love that question. I and mean, you said so many wonderful things that I want to reflect upon. Sure, yeah. Go but, for you know, it. I think um, when we talk about sort of internal sources of doing what you want and knowing that people are not really thinking about you all the time, I love that. I have told that to my friends, my family, my clients. Like, you think that they're thinking about you, but the truth of the matter is everyone is self-centered. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to some degree, you know? Good news, bad news. Yeah, good news, bad news. Like you think you're the only one. No, you know, we're all self-centered in that way that we're more considering rate, considering what we're thinking about and what people are perceiving of us. And, you know, something will flash across somebody's mind for five minutes and then they're thinking about themselves or something else again. And so I, I do think that that that's an important reminder for people that even if there is any quote unquote judgment, that judgment passes so quickly that it's really just not going to register. It's like a blip on their radar. You know, you might be uh, conversation fodder for five minutes and then it goes away because something else more capturing their, of their attention, like the, the Chiron on CNN or like the pop-up, <laughs> you know, that they get on their computer is going to, you know, take them away to another completely different place. But I do think that increasing sort of element of like exposing yourself to risk that you 
suggested and, and sort of represented in your own life, I think that that's important for people to know that that is one of the most important and evidence-based ways that we can conquer our fears. And I think when I was younger, if I was to be able to go back and to tell myself, you know, something along those lines, I mean, I think one of the things that I would have told myself is it's not, this is not permanent. It's not that big of a deal. You know, like mm. again, when you're in junior high and high school, you're always like, my life is over because I didn't get out of the prom, <laughs> you know? And it's so funny when you look back on that now, like, why does that even matter, right? But at the time, it was like the center of your universe. And I do think that when we're younger, we don't realize that these things don't have permanence. Like you only see any kind of annoyance or struggle or suffering as like, oh, this is how my life's going to be. And clearly it's not, right? It's, it changes across time. And, and I also think that it is important if I could, you know, give myself a second lesson is just, you know, remembering that, if you put yourself up and expose yourself up to a fear, like usually it's never as bad as you think it's going to be. So one of my one of my fears was fear of heights. I still kind of have a little bit of a fear of heights, but it's it's much more manageable now. And in general, I mean, I'm not fearful when I'm in a plane or anything like that or in a tall building, but it's more like when you're exposed, like if I'm standing like on the edge of a balcony <laughs> or maybe even when I was in roller coasters and it didn't stop me from going on them, but I was always so nervous. And eventually I just decided to do flooding on myself. And I actually started taking flying trapeze classes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and if I, and if I could tell myself that that was basically the route to like conquer anything is through exposure. I that, like that would have been really helpful to know. But I mean, the first day I went to take that class, I was shaking so hard on the platform that I thought, platform was going to break. And that's <laughs> one of these uh, flying trapeze instructors is that was just not their first rodeo. They've obviously seen people who want to back out last minute. And I have to tell you guys, I wanted to back out last minute. So I got up to the top of the platform. It's about four, three and a half to four stories tall in terms of height from the ground. And I was like, ah, never mind. I'm going to go down the ladder, you know? <laughs> and they literally blocked me. You know, I mean, they literally prevented me from leaving. They're like, nope, the only way down is through that bar. And then you have to jump into the net. They, didn't, they would not allow me to go down the ladder. And I'm actually so glad that they didn't because if I did, you know how that just reinforces your fear. So I'm so glad that I did. And then eventually I actually ended up loving it. I started taking classes like twice a week. You know, it was just so crazy that something that was a fear of mine became something so beautiful in my life. And also one of the primary ways in which I was able to achieve mindfulness ever because I'm that person who does mindfulness and is still making to-do lists in my head. It's a, it's a constant struggle for me. <laughs> um, but when you're on the top of that platform, you really can't think about anything else. You really have to be mindful of exactly what's going on and what type of mechanism needs to happen so that you can actually jump off and complete a trick or whatever else in a safe fashion. So I kind of had to force mindfulness on myself through this fear. That's really fantastic, Doctor. And I, I think that everything that you're saying there in terms of your experience as a child of things, feeling like they're going to continue forever, not realizing that they will eventually dissipate. And then the lesson you gave at the end there about kind of meeting and conquering your fears are things that we can all take examples of into our own life. So I think they're really wonderful stories and are also just a really great place, I think, to kind of bring this episode to a close. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh my goodness, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for reading my book and for all of your wonderful insights. Yeah, absolutely. Real pleasure. Again, the book is Stop Self-Sabotage. It is wonderful. I'll include a link to it in the description of today's episode. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Judy Ho. We began our conversation by exploring what drew Dr. Ho to self-sabotage as a topic and where self-sabotage comes from, which at bottom is about a misalignment between our pursuit of rewards 
and our avoidance of harms. In other words, when we're more afraid of sticks than we're interested in pursuing carrots, we tend to self-sabotage. We then looked at some of the big different categories by which people self-sabotage. She created a handy acronym of LIFE for the four major things, the four major routes that tend to lead to self-sabotage. Those are low or shaky self-concept, internalized beliefs, fear of change or the unknown, and excessive need for control. These four underlying beliefs relate to six key triggers or kind of negative thoughts that might float through our mind that tend to cue somebody into a self-sabotaging behavior. Those triggers are overgeneralizing, shoulds, black and white thinking, mind reading, discounting the positive, and personalization. We entered into a little bit of forest therapy in the course of the podcast. My personal tendencies are generally around lower shaky self-concept and discounting the positive, which is what tends to cue my self-sabotaging behaviors when they do arise. We talked a bit about where some of those behaviors might come from and particularly entered into a conversation around lower shaky self-concept, specifically the issues that people have with updating their self-concept to match new positive things that have happened in their life and how sometimes people can take on destructive behaviors in order to reduce the circumstances of their life to the level of their self-concept. Dr. Ho gave some great advice about some of the tools that people can use to avoid doing that. One of the things that she really highlighted throughout the conversation was the importance of taking your mind a little bit less seriously and using practices such as labeling thoughts to put a little bit of distance between yourself and what flows through your mind in the course of a day. Toward the end of the episode, we spoke for a little while about bringing our lives in alignment with our deep values and how often we choose goals that are kind of what we think we should be doing, but they aren't necessarily in alignment with our deeply held values. And often those are the goals that are most challenging for us to really pursue, which makes sense. They're not actually what we want to be doing. They're what we feel that we should be doing. And so self-sabotaging behaviors can really start to creep in. So a great thing to do is to really identify the values that are truly key for you. And one of the things that Dr. Ho mentioned as a way to do that is by identifying times in your life when you were really truly fulfilled by what you were doing and then breaking down those times to see what the common values might be that you held. So if you're interested in Dr. Ho's new book, Stop Self-Sabotage, I'll be including a link to that in the description of today's episode. I'll also link out to her website, which includes some of the quizzes that we mentioned throughout this episode. I'd also like to remind you about Dr. Hansen's new online offering, Just One Minute. If you're really committed to growing the skills that you know would make a big difference in your life these days, but you don't have a ton of time, this is absolutely for you. Rick walks through a ton of simple, straightforward practices. They're delivered in a audio video format. Uh, they're really well done. They're beautifully shot. Each of them is shorter than a couple of minutes long, which is why the title is Just One Minute. And it's really a wonderful, helpful offering. If you're interested in learning more about that, I've also included a link to it in the description of today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take the time to leave a rating, leave a review, and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out, and it's one of the best ways that you can support the show. So until next time, thanks for listening. 